And they provoked the Lord to anger. They forsook the Lord and served Baal and the Ashtaroths. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. So he delivered them into the hands of the plunderers who despoiled them. And he sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, so that they could no longer stand before their enemies. Wherever they went out, the hand of the Lord was against them for calamity. And as the Lord had said, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were greatly distressed. Nevertheless, the Lord raised up judges who delivered them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they would not listen to their judges, but they played the harlot with other gods and bowed down to them. They turned quickly from the way in which their fathers walked in obeying the commandments of the Lord, though they did not do so. And when the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge and delivered them out of the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. For the Lord was moved to pity by their groanings because of those who oppressed them and harassed them. And, that they, and it came to pass, when the judge was dead, that they reversely behaved more corruptly than their fathers by following other gods to serve them and bow down to them. They did not cease from their own doom, nor from their stubborn one. And the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel, and he said, Because this nation has transgressed my covenant, which I commanded their fathers, and has not heeded my voice, we also will no longer drive them out before drive out before them any of the nations which Joshua left when he died, so that through them I may test Israel whether they will keep the ways of the Lord to walk in them as their fathers kept them or not. Therefore the Lord left those nations without driving them out immediately, nor did he deliver them into the hand of Joshua. Now these are the nations which the Lord left that he might test Israel by them, that is, all who had not known any of the wars in Canaan. It was only so that the generations of the children of Israel might be taught to know war, at least those who had not formerly known it. Namely, five lords of the Philistines, all the Canaanites, the Sidonians, and the Hivites who dwelt in Mount Lebanon, and from Mount Baalhur to the entrance of Canaan. And they were left that he might test Israel by them to know whether they would obey the commandments of the Lord which he had commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. And thus the children of Israel dwelt among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. And they took their daughters to be their wives and gave their daughters to their sons. And they served their gods. Amen. May God bless that reading with own precious word. Of course, in that reading, we have a more or less a complete summary of what's going to happen uh, during the whole course of the book of Judges. Uh, but hopefully, we'll be able to look perhaps in a little, more, little bit more detail at the various events. But this evening, I'd like to take our starting point. Uh, from the Deuteronomy and turn back to John chapter 7. I'll just read the first, the few words of verses. This is Moses speaking to the people before they actually go in to the land. Therefore, it gives us, in a sense, the setting in which the people of Israel were meant 
to occupy the land. And so, Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1, When the Lord your God brings you into the land which you go to possess, and has cast out many nations before you, the Hittites and the Gurkhashites and the Amorites and the Canaanites and the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites, seven nations greater and mightier than you, and when the Lord your God delivers them over to you, you shall conquer them and utterly destroy them. You shall make no covenant with them, nor show mercy to them, nor shall you make marriages with them. You shall not give your daughter to their son, nor take their daughter or your son. For they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods, and the anger of the Lord will be aroused against you and destroy you suddenly. But thus you shall deal with them. You shall destroy their altars, break down their sacred pillars, and cut down their wooden images, and burn their carved images with fire. Therefore you are a holy people to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for himself, a special treasure above all the peoples on the face of the earth. The Lord did not set his love on you nor choose you because you are more in number than any other people, for you are the least of all the people. But because the Lord loves you, and because he would keep the oath which he swore to your fathers, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of bondage, from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Therefore, know that the Lord your God, he is God, the faithful God who keeps covenant and mercy for a thousand generations with those who love him and keep his commandments. And he repays those who hate him to their face to destroy them. He will not be slack with him who hates him. He will repay him to his face. Therefore, you should keep the commandment, the statutes and the judgments which I have commanded you today to observe them. And so as we look at this particular position, we find, as I said earlier, we find the standard, if you like, of behaviour, the standard of conditions of obedience that God set before the people of Israel in order that they might inherit and then peaceably and prosperously dwell in the promised land. There was no excuse for the people and Moses had set the word of God clearly before them and elsewhere later in Deuteronomy Moses said to the people that they are set before you life and death to choose life that you might live long in the land. A land promised all those years ago to Abraham. And indeed we looked very closely in our serious journey to Abraham at those great and mighty promises which God made to the father of the faithful. These words, of course, spoken by Moses all those hundreds, even possibly over a thousand years or so, are, surprisingly, repeated by the Apostle Peter hundreds of years later. And Peter writes these words, and I don't know if you can keep Deuteronomy open before you, but notice this, that you are a holy people, writes Peter, uh, to the Lord your God. For the Lord has chosen you to be a special person, to be a special people for himself. 
a special people above all the people on the face of the earth. It goes on, 1 Peter 2 verse 9, For you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. You who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who obtained, had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. It's remarkable, <coughs> extremely close, the comparison of these two verses. And in the closeness of these two verses, we find indicated to us, in many ways laid upon us, those same standards of obedience and those same standards of holiness that Moses in God's name all those years ago were brought before the people of Israel as they were about to enter the promised land. And there are in these two verses, aren't they, although many hundreds of years apart, some, power, some really powerful parallels, all of which we don't have time to consider, but there is one that stands out, I think, from all the many parallels that perhaps concern us tonight. And that parallel is found in the word transition. You see, the people of Israel were moving from the privations and from the difficulties and the problems of the wilderness, where they had been forced, of course, to wander for an extra 40 years. They were transitioning, weren't they, from this wilderness to a land of rich fertility, to a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where all their needs would be met. And so, in some senses, we can compare that now to the transition that Peter set out to his readers. He's writing to the dispersion, isn't he? To the saints spread abroad through persecution. He says, Him who called you out of darkness, Here's the beginning of the transition that's called you out of darkness into his marvellous light. We are taken from darkness to light. And he goes on, who, referring to the, his reader, his hearers, you who once were not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but have now obtained mercy. Well, truths these are, aren't they? As we look at the great plan and purposes of God throughout the Scriptures, that throughout the Scriptures there is this continuity. You see, for the people of Israel, it was a physical transition, wasn't it? They were moving from one piece of land across the River Jordan into that land which God had promised to Abraham. But for Christians, of course... It is a spiritual transition. Uh, we have a spiritual warfare that we live. And we've been delivered spiritually from the guilt and punishment of our sin. But in both cases, in the case of the Israelites, in the case of Christians today, the fundamental responsibilities, if you like, of obedience, of faithfulness and commitment all these things, these same uh, requirements, that they're essential in order that we might enter into the blessings of Almighty God. 
as it said, I set before you life and death, choose life, that you may live long in the land. And indeed, the land that God was giving to them, as we said, was a fertile land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And in a spiritual sense, this is true of our transition from darkness and sin into the light of eternal grace, into the light of eternal glory. So, the terms and conditions set out by God through Moses continue to be applicable to us today. What are they? Drive out sin. This was the first command. Drive out these nations before you. Drive out sin. Drive out evil. Be separate from the world. There was to be no intermarrying. Be separate from the world. Strive to live holy lives. Uh, so, friends, as we now look more deeply into the book of Judges, there's much to us from the, to learn, isn't there? From the scriptures. Uh, lessons provided for us by the history of the people of Israel at this time. Now, some weeks ago, one of our speakers on the Sunday, and sadly I can't remember who it was, somebody might remind me, focused on the importance of the word context. Anybody think? No? Okay. Focus on the importance of the word context in applying the truths of Scripture and perhaps also in the work of expository preaching. So I'd like to spend a few moments now uh, looking at the scene at the time of the judges. Now, apparently Henry Ibsen coined the phrase a picture is worth a thousand words. I've saved myself several thousand words, I've brought some pictures. Okay, where does it begin? Well, it begins with a map of the land of Israel with the twelve tribes settled in the land that Joshua allotted to them. And they had crossed the river Jordan and they were now, in the, of course they had come from the east and they were now dwelling in the land. And what we see here is that they have their allotted possessions. Some have huge lands. Manasseh and Judah have huge lands. Lesser, Gad and Ruth. And even tiny ones, Dan and Issachar. And perhaps the smallest of all, Zebulun. These are the lands uh, that have been allotted to them and they now move to inherit them after the work and leadership of Joshua. But what's important, I think, about this particular map is not so much, in many ways, it is important, but about the tribes, but it's about the nations around them. You see, what we're going to see clockwise, we've seen the Arameans, the people of Ammon, the people of Moab, the people of Edom, the people of Amalek, and the people of Philistia. And the important thing we note is that all these tribes should have been driven out of the land. They should have been driven out of the land and this land was designed to be occupied by the people of Israel. It was the gift of God. What we see, of course, is because the people of Israel failed to do these things, the heathen nations remained there. And interestingly, of course, as we know, as we've read through the book, and they were remained there to be used by God to discipline the people because of their many sins. 
chief of course of which was the one which God himself had warned about their chief sin was idolatry and intermingling with these heathen nations these times of disciplining were in fact part of the continuing cycle of events that we noted last time um, as we go through the uh, 12 um, judges these times of discipline were part of the continuing cycle of events they sinned and the discipline came in subjection to the foreign nations around so in that previous month and then the cycle of events continued for approximately 350 to 400 years some people may get as long as 500 years but possibly it's around 350 to 400 years and the cycle is sin, subjection, supplication and salvation I'll probably mention it again later but supplication here most commentators agree is not designed to infer um, repentance but it is designed to actually plead with God to deliver them from the oppression very much the same as the people of Israel cried out under the bondage of the Egyptians and God heard their cry and so the underlying reason for this continual cycle uh, throughout the book of uh, Judges uh, the behaviour and the practice of the people of Israel is find, found right at the end of the book of Judges in the very last verse in the very last chapter you see in those days there was no king in Israel everyone did what was right in his own eyes after the death of Joshua it seems there was no direct successor in that sense it seems that the people were left to their own devices now experience will tell us won't it this is always a dangerous time when people are left to their own devices the dangerous time and the dangerous state of affairs and of course this evidence goes right back to the beginning of man's existence Adam and Eve were given weren't they the freedom to obey or disobey and of course as we know they chose disobedience and such has been the inclination of the hearts of men ever since our inclination is towards disobedience to God this of course is again due to the continuing influence of original sin and the continuing efforts of Satan as we looked in a series earlier of Satan to keep control of God's creation to hold that control under his own power this as we said this continuing war against God however perhaps the most important we shall see that the many events recorded in Judges we think of that cycle again seeing subjection, supplication and that cycle will prefigure, prefigure the greater events that were to come later in the history of man with the birth, the death, the life the resurrection and the ascension of the great deliverer himself of the Lord Jesus Christ this cycle of sin, subjection, supplication and salvation is repeated, isn't it? Every time a sinner is brought to repentance and finds salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. The wonderful 
picture here we have, and time and time and time again, this process is repeated as if to reinforce and to drive in that in many ways we are sinners, we are under the mastery of Satan, we need in our case to repent and find salvation in the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, as we continue in our studies, we will see that before Christ came into human history, God raised up men and women throughout the history to deliver his people from the oppression of those who would indeed bring down, bring love, the work of Almighty God. And this deliverance would bring forth periods of peace. In all, as we see from this chart, God raised up 12 judges, 11 men and one woman, for this purpose. Now, you can see what we know. There are some things that we know in great detail. Other things we don't know at all. In the case of Shemuel, there's only one verse in the Bible that mentions his name and what he did. Um, the time of his leadership is unknown, but we do know that he killed 600 Philistines with an ox gun. But others, Tola, Jaya, uh, we don't know what their main deeds were, uh, but uh, we know that they ruled 23, 22 years, and then the last but one, the three of them, Elon and Abdon, again, we don't know what their great works were, but they ruled again for a combined 25 years. So we do know about Gideon Ever, we know about Samson, of course, the major judgment. We shouldn't, however, assume that uh, the chart shows that it's a continuous and complete list of the operation of the judges in the land of Israel. As we read through the book, we'll find that uh, there were periods when the judge died before the next judge was appointed that the people went back into their sinful ways. You see, there were periods again when they fell into sin and then another judge was raised to deliver them. It's also worth noting in passing that many of the judges did not rule over the whole land all at one go. At times, um, one judge would have ruled over perhaps one tribe or two or three tribes. And also it's important to note but sometimes the rule of judges overlapped one with another. So what we're told here is that uh, while the Ammonites oppressed the people, while the Ammonites oppressed the people in the east, at the same time the Philistines were oppressing the people in the southwest. And so it's important that I've tried to do this to put the two charts side by side so that we get a good appreciation of how the process, how the events took place. One final event and one final thought, perhaps a very obvious thought, is that as we come to the individual judges, these are not judges in the sense that we understand judges, that they're not judicial judges that function was taken by the elders and the officers of the tribe. But the term judge used here is, has the equivalent interpretation of a leader or a ruler. 
And as we shall see, very often uh, this uh, leadership uh, covered military tasks as well as civilian leadership. So, I'm sorry, I haven't got watch. Can somebody tell me how the time's going? Thank you. No judging or clocks Thank you, Barbara. Really? Okay, so come to next, the first of the judges. And for this, we need to turn to Judges chapter 3, verse 7. So the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and Asherah. And then there's this incredibly powerful phrase, therefore the anger of the Lord was hot against Israel. I don't know how many parents have been driven to have the hot anger <laughs> against their children. Persistent disobedience and drives you up the wall. But this is a great picture of the continued rebellion of the people of Israel, that it provoked God to a hot anger. And he sold them into the land of Kushan Rishathayim. So, what we have here, God raises up Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon him and he judged Israel. So, the name Othniel means God's strength, or God's life, very appropriate for the task that was to be set before him. And we find that uh, the scripture tells us that he was the younger brother of Caleb, chapter 3, verse 9. He was a very brave man, according to chapter 1, verses 12 to 15. We see that he volunteered. We'll look at that in a few minutes. Um, he was a man on whom the Spirit of God dwelt or came upon him. He judged Israel for 40 years. Uh, it's very similar to the preaching of Jeremiah, isn't it? In Isaiah, 40 years delayed. And as a result of his labours and God's grace, the land had rest. And we know roughly that he judged Israel about 1,350 years before Christ. And so we just look a little deeper, perhaps, into these things. The younger brother of Caleb, who was Caleb, or Caleb was the faithful, believing spy, who together with Joshua, brought back a good, a positive report from the land of Canaan. Othniel then, the younger brother, uh, was from a good, believing household, a good, believing, God-fearing family. His brother, his elder brother Caleb, was shown to be trusting in the Lord. Now he, the younger brother, is also called to the same service, but in many ways to a greater responsibility. And from this we might observe, might we, that the, it's how important it is for perhaps believing parents, even believing siblings, uh, to set a good and godly example within the family, within the family situation that perhaps their brothers and sisters, or even if it's a child that's been converted, might witness to parents, and so fulfill uh, the will of God. It's a wonderful thought, isn't it, that the younger brother of Cain is used as a great deliverer. Mm -hmm. Othniel was also a brave man. 
Right back in Judges chapter 1, down to verse 12. Caleb, again, perhaps still a senior member of the leadership after Joshua's death. He says, whoever attacks Kijat Sifa and takes it to him, I will give my daughter Akash and one. And Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother, took it. And so he gave his daughter Akash as one. Othniel was a brave man. He had already here, we read, answered the call to arms, hadn't he? It was a victory to be won, a city to be overcome. He responded to the call of um, undertaking under God's control a very successful uh, campaign against Kirchhoff-Sifa. He was quite clearly willing to go into battle with all its risks. And then thirdly, perhaps the most important, we are told that the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Lord, came upon him. I mentioned last time uh, this truth was crucial in understanding the role and importantly, importantly, the success of each of the judges in their allotted tasks. You see, the success that they achieved was achieved in spite of, in spite of their own human natures, their own human failings, their faults and failings, and this is clearly shown, isn't it, in the life of Samson. You see, in each case, in each case, the spirit endowed them with gifts, gifts of leadership, military uh, strategy, civil leadership, uh, looking after the Lord, gifts of courage. Remember, Moses was driven to destruction uh, by the people. He saw the Lord there uh, ready to uh, slay him. Yes, he needed, he took courage to lead such a vast number of people. And gifts that demonstrated, didn't they? These gifts demonstrated that they were those upon whom God had set his spirit. And these gifts set them apart. I'm not going to go into it now, but there's a very interesting discussion that's taken place amongst commentators over the role of the Spirit in the Old Testament and the role and the work of the Spirit in the New Testament. We find that God grants through the Spirit miraculous gifts in these terms, whereas in the New Testament the gifts are more gracious and spiritual, and it's a very interesting discussion. But as we have read and noted, Othniel's task was to deliver and then rule over the people of Israel. Again, God, whose anger was hot against Israel, we notice there, had sold. Isn't it very dramatic, is it? He had sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishathayim. Very, very deliberate. He had sold them into the hand of the king of Mesopotamia. And what we read is that they had to endure eight long years of oppression and now they had cried to the Lord for deliverance. Again, this is a cry in desperation to be delivered. They have been oppressed these many years. Not necessarily a cry for repentance. If it had been true repentance, the rest of the judges would have been completely not necessary because if the people had truly repented, they would have continued to serve and worship the Lord. But as we know, 12, 11 more times, the people run after the gods of other nations. 
And so it was a case where there was a job for a man and a man for the job. In this case, and at this time, the man was off near. And again we see here, don't we, the hand of God at work. After he, after he had sold the people into the hand of the Mesopotamian king, he now delivers the Mesopotamian king into the hand of Othniel. Now we may have seen films or programs and we can imagine the cost of that particular deliverance and the amount of bloodshed and mutilation and pain uh, that took place in those days in hand-to-hand combat. Uh, these battles were fought hand-to-hand, more or less, sword against sword, shield against shield. Yet God visited with such punishment, if you like, as they defeated. God visited this on his enemies. Now again, we referred last time to the brutality. And here we might question you know, this is terrible. But why couldn't they just settle things gently, though? But no, or why couldn't God just close the hearts and minds and send them away somewhere else and deliver the people that way? But of course, this visitation was quite just. You see, these foreign heathen nations were idolaters. They were idol worshippers. They practised evil, idolatrous an abominable worship. It was a terrible thing. And what we see here is that God is actually now doing what he instructed the people of Israel to do, and that was to drive out these nations. They should have done it when they come into the promised land. So what we see, perhaps here in conclusion, 12 times the Lord has to raise up a deliverer. And from this we infer that 12 times the people were punished for their wickedness and their rebellion. 12 times the land had rest from oppression and the people had rest. 12 times they fell back into sin and rebellion. And perhaps lovingly, 12 times deliverance was provided. Of course, this pattern of behaviour was not unlimited to the time of the judges or the record of the judges. The rebellion and sin of the people of Israel uh, firstly led to the captivity for 70 years and then ultimately, I think, to the fall of Jerusalem, the conquest of Jerusalem that was raised to the ground by the Romans in AD 70. And the Jewish people were scattered throughout the world and not only were they scattered, uh, but they have through the centuries they've been continually oppressed uh, by the nations in which they were found. I've been reading the history of the Plantagenet kings, and often and often and often the king uh, banishes the Jewish community out of his land because he thought um, he would steal their money, steal their goods, steal their chattels, and banish them. They were looked upon as very dark forces in the land. So they've been continually oppressed in many lands. And I suppose in many ways, that doesn't sound controversial, but in many ways, this oppression has found its culmination in the horrors of the Holocaust. So then, 
Considering then these events as recorded in the scriptures, we are given a sense only of the perspective of the magnitude of our salvation. I think it costs for our deliverance. Nowhere in my opinion is this magnitude better expressed than in Paul's words to the Ephesians. You might just turn to Ephesians chapter 2 and read these words, these opening words, in the context of what we've been discussing. Bearing in mind that this applies not to the people of Israel, but to the early church and by succession to us today. He's speaking here and he says, You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desire of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, even as others. And so up to this point, we identify, we are identified with the wicked, rebellious, idolatrous, sinful people of Israel. But God is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we are dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. Deliverance. Amazing deliverance. At an incredible cost. And yet we have been made alive together with him. Paul's thoughts Paul's expressions of truth here in these ten verses should produce in us a heart of grateful praise, a heart of grateful adoration. It is for the faithful, the continuing deliverance of sin. Perhaps our greatest daily request, perhaps in our prayer time, the greatest daily request is found in the words that the Lord Jesus Christ taught his disciples to pray. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. This is what we need. Day by day, prone to wonder. Lord, I feel it was the verse I quoted at the end of the last message. And it's still true. We need to pray, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. May God bless his word for us this evening.